0: Apple Music is here to make heading back to university a breeze this year with their epic special offer. If you're a university student and you sign up for Apple Music now, you'll get the first six months free. Yeah, you heard me right. Six months free. And wait for it, there's a little bit more. You'll also get a free subscription to Apple TV+. I mean, there's only so many times you can watch Parks and Rec, right? Get busy exploring over 70 million songs all ad-free. Remember, this offer is for new subscribers only and only available to students, so verification will be required on sign-up. Even better, after your free period is over, your subscription will renew for 29 99 per month, which is a steal. This offer is valid until the 30th of April 2021, so, like, get off the couch and get busy listening. Welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to one half of a DJ duo who rose to acclaim in the mid-'80s through production and remix work for a number of modern rock, hip-hop, and dance outfits. Alongside his partner, Jonathan Moore, It wouldn't be amiss to call them pioneers of UK's electronic dance scene, while also being technological trendsetters and a unifying force in underground experimental electronic music through their eclectic pirate radio show. I am, of course, talking about Cold Cut and Ninja Tunes' Matt Black. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Hey, uh, good to be here. I'm fine, thank you.
0: It's such an incredible honor to have you on the show today. Our whole team has been buzzing about this interview for a few weeks now. And and, Matt, there's so much to talk about. Um, But what we like to do here at Text Talks is to go back to the beginning, to start at the beginning. And I think for you, the simplest would be to tell me how you met your partner in crime, Jonathan Moore.
1: Yeah, well, I met John in the end of 1986. It's a epoch ago now. And um, we had a mutual friend called Mary James, and uh, she had a shop in Covent Garden and used to collect mixtapes. So she had a tape of mine. I went in there to sell her a new tape, and she played me this tape of this guy, John Moore. I was like, hmm, I thought I was the best mixer in town. This guy's really good. So that was the first time I came became aware of John. And then later, I met him when he was working in Reckless Records, the notorious secondhand shop in Berwick Street, London.
0: Any jungling guy? I got a Tarzan and Jada jungle just swinging on the vine this morning, mate. I'm telling you, this could turn Eric Krishna into a bad boy.
1: And um, we struck a, a conversation as vinyl junkies do, and particularly, we were interested in these records coming out of New York, sort of hip hop cut up records by Double D and Steinske. Mm-hmm. So we sort of bonded on those, and also a love of black music, funk, soul, hip hop. Um, and uh, yeah, all funky things. But particularly, we wanted to make something like these records coming out of New York. And so that was our joint project, which became Say Kids, What Time Is It? Our first record is Cold mm. Cut.
0: I mean, you mentioned Say Kids, What Time Is It? And, and it's been heralded as one of the first UK singles to be made up entirely of samples. Tell me about your affinity for technology at a young age and and what influenced you as a duo to adopt this approach to music production. Say kids, what time is it?
1: Yeah, I've always had an affinity with technology, and I I always liked sound and music, and that was quite big in my family. My mum and dad didn't play instruments, but they used to have a pretty good record collection. We used to sing a lot as a family, but it was my sister who ended up getting piano lessons. I don't know why I didn't do them, but I think probably it looked too much like hard work. So I decided I could sort of save time by using technology to help me make sounds and sort of become a musician. In the end, it hasn't really saved me any time, but it's given me a way in which I wouldn't otherwise have had because I've never really had any formal musical training so that was the idea really to use technology to kind of accelerate the process of making music partly from being a bit lazy really.
0: So the late 80s in the UK I mean they heralded as a massive cultural shift in the way that people and producers approached the concept of music for creation. Set the scene for me roundabout this time in terms of how you saw electronic production beginning to influence the creation of music at that time?
1: Well, really, um, I think you got to give a big nod to hip hop mm-hmm. because it was hip hop that sort of pioneered the idea that you could make records by cutting up other records. And this kind of real time sound manipulation that the hip hop DJs like Grandmaster Flash and Jam Master J and... Um, Wizkid pioneered was just a sort of very Exciting and powerful new way to manipulate sound. I guess you could say did you know the the DJ the late John Peel?
0: Yes, so annoying, you know when you
1: write out the start of the program as
0: I do every night and still get it wrong
1: Well, he was a big influence on John and me and, and indeed on generations of UK music lovers And I think John Peel sort of pioneered the idea that it was cool to be into a lot of different sorts of music and hip-hop DJ scratch technology and techniques gave us a way of combining different musics in real time and making kind of collage out of it but the real jump forward there was with the advent of cheap computers and cheap sampling hardware Uh, our first one was made by Casio, our first sampler so the idea that we could use those like i was saying to sort of accelerate uh the music making process without having formal musical training was very attractive and that kind of collided with a, a melting pot in the london scene in uh, uh, the, uh, the mid 80s i guess was when the london scene warehouse scene was in full effect and these were sort of really exciting cool underground illegal a lot of the time parties where people of all different races and cultures and ages and backgrounds came together to party get off with each other, dance, get high, and just enjoy a kind of melting pot underground culture. And I think that fuel is really what fueled the London music explosion, which is still sort of going on today.
0: And, you know, then add to that the show that you and Jonathan had on pirate radio station Kiss FM,
2: Mm. um,
0: which obviously the role of pirate radio in in the UK at the time was obviously also shaping that underground movement that you spoke about that yep. was happening um what do you think the secret ingredient was that has made solid steel like so so prolific even to this day i mean it started in 88 it must be one of the longest running mix shows in the world surely
1: well solid steel I, is a kind of conspiracy of music lovers i guess and and mixologists um that idea that you know, by mixing records together, you could create something new. Is at the basis of the DJ, the love of DJs and mixing? Um, that idea that you, by mixing records together, you can create something new—a sort of offspring form—is a, a really powerful idea, and that was something that was very much in the air at that time. That's the basis of Solid Steel. You know, combined with an, a sort of eclectic, cross-the-board love of music. As I say, I mentioned John Peel there. So I think Solid Steel sort of continue to take that forward. And, um, you know, we do have a, a loyal worldwide following that's uh, appreciated that. It's kind of the radio station of Ninja Tune, if you like. Mm. I mean, Kiss FM circa 1986, 87, which was when I joined. John, John got me on there. Um, it was pretty exciting. We really had most of the top underground DJs in London. Of course, as is often the case, the the establishment, your BBC and the official stations were just not catering for what the youth wanted to hear. So mm-hmm. the pirates were the way that those sounds reached the earwaves. And Kiss FM at that time was the sort of the, the leading one. So I was pretty pretty happy to join in and become part of it. I mean, we had you know we had Tim Westwood, we had Jazzy B, we had Jay Strongman, we had Norman Jay, we had Judge Jules, we had Colin Favor, Colin Dale, uh, Joey Jay. I could. He, Patrick Ford, you know, it was pretty much um, a, a, the top selection of alternate DJs in London who are pioneering this new sort of open sound, which was, I've got to say, largely based on black music. I'm not embarrassed to call it that. I think it's important to give credit to where that's come from. It was black music of different sorts. And then, you know, that term has, has broadened out, but reggae, funk, soul, the music brought in by the immigrant communities in the UK and also from African-American culture was hugely influential and the base. It was the base of it all.
0: I think, you know, you, you, there a lot was happening in the eighties from, but from a cold cut perspective, you closed out that decade by leaning into some pretty epic collaborations with Queen Latifah and Markie Smith. And when you think back on it now, how did you feel <laughs> how did you feel about that first album about how the style of cold cut was coming together at that time
1: you know it's so it's all very well looking back with a you know benefit of experience to sort of see then with hindsight what things meant but at the time we were just really in it and we were just very excited we didn't know really what we were doing we, john and i talked about the search for ignorant you know, we want to get back, in a way, to that sort of... They call, they talk about beginner's mind in Zen. We had no real idea what we were doing. We just knew that we loved music and we wanted to get on with it. Um, and, you know, I mean, you mentioned Queen Latifah, for example. She is a very talented lady and who's become a big star in America. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the time we were... Um, Fascinated by the Flavor Unit and uh, Tommy Boy and De La Soul, and these were heroes to us actually. And the chance to work with real American hip hop artists was a was a, a huge boost. I mean, Marquis Smith passed on that, but I I always felt that in a strange way, he was a kind of authentic UK rap voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, UK hip hop took a long time to find its own voice and give up the fake American accents, and I thought in a way, what Marquis Smith was doing was manifesting that kind of free form enjoyment and kind of fuck you attitude with words and it was a very original talent as well so it was a privilege to work with him.
0: You also started a multimedia group called Hex that I want to talk a little bit about because you were essentially pushing the capabilities of new technologies at the time like CD-ROM and interactive computing and video sampling and, and all of these things that were so new at the time. What were some of the the wackiest things that you produced at the time by pushing the boundaries of these new technologies?
1: Well, there was, uh, again, it was like a, a real good playground at the time because that, that area was wide open. There weren't really many musicians working with visuals and computer games and multimedia. And John and I found we could apply the principles of hip hop and sampling and that kind of DJ aesthetic and techniques to visuals as well. Um, you know, our piece, audiovisual piece Timber made with Stuart Warren Hills a, a good example of that but I also have a fondness for our first ever computer game which was called Top Banana and I did that with um, the other members of HEX uh, Rob Pepperall and Miles Wisman, who were like two guys who come out of art school but they were interested in taking that art school training but using electronic techniques to for their practice and we put this video game together, it starred a female Character called Katie, named after an old girlfriend of mine, and she was a gutsy home girl, as the, the face terms her. I love it. Um, taking on, you know, the um, the JCBs, the businessmen, the, the skeletons, and other various sort of toxic enemies in them, um, and you had to save the world with the power of love by shooting these hearts or these nasties. You could turn them into tasty food that you could eat, pick up your energy, and get to the top levels. So I'm. Um, some people said it was the most horrible-looking computer game. Others, other people said it was like the Sergeant Pepper video game. So we, we made it with sampled graphics, which again was something that I think was a bit of an innovation at the time. So it had a very sort of rich, crazy, psychedelic look. So that um, that release I, I have a great fondness for in particular.
0: If I wanted to play Top Banana, who would have a copy? <laughs> I'm sure you would. I think would.
1: you'd struggle to play it. But although I did actually buy a CDTV, which is probably before your time, but the Amiga computer was one of the first desktop computers um, that you could do visuals on. And I, I went to Selfridges one time and I saw this um, this machine there. And on the screen was this, I didn't even know it was computer graphics. I hardly knew the term, but it was a simple computer 3D animation of a juggler bouncing these crystal balls on a checkered black background, mm-hmm. a, a checkered yellow and green background. I looked at it I thought, that means you could make a whole film on the desktop on one of these machines. So I bought one and I started messing around with it. And, um, yeah, uh, again, it was like the sort of birth of sampling. It was a very exciting time because there were no rules. And even though the technology was limited, you could still do stuff that you could never have done before. I got a 40 pound little box that plugged into it that you could video sample a few, a few seconds of sort of black and white video, but it was enough to give you the idea. It's like, wow, we're going to be able to sample anything we want and chop it up just like we're doing with sound. That was a real powerful realization and uh, a very fruitful direction the last few decades.
0: That's so interesting. I think coming from the 80s into the 90s, I think the 90s was one of the defining decades for the popularization of electronic music although electronic music just keeps growing and growing and growing but i think the 90s especially in the in the uk was huge
1: that was when it really got going yeah absolutely.
0: yeah so h- how did you see the culture begin to take shape in the uk and and see it enter the the mainstream what were the first telltale signs
1: well you know the first telltale signs are sort of when you see what were quite weird underground um avant-garde records reaching the pop charts and i put sort of house music in that category really a record like say jackie body steve silk hurley
2: mm-hmm. i mean when i heard
1: that i would just sort of play it again and again at top volume trying to get inside the sound and work out how they were doing this so i guess a lot of people like that you know you hear a record um I think Jello Biafra said this actually. Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys was, you know, he saw the Ramones on stage one time. And he thought, you know, I think I could do this. I think I'll. He, he saw them and said, I could do this. I think I will. And that was those records that I heard were what launched me into electronic music. And I think our records and other people's records inspired a bunch more people to have a go themselves, and that just has kept cascading. But you know they... The, the party scene, the advent of ecstasy, of these big illegal raves, the fact that it wasn't being catered for by the establishment. So it was something fresh and new and rebellious for the youth to get into that provided a big push to it as well. And like I say, there were no rules.
0: So was the formation of your record label Ninja Tune a case of you having a look at the scene and what was going on and you going, I think I can do that. I think I will, maybe.
1: Yeah, but we'd sort of done that already when we started ahead of our time. You see, that was our first label. And then what happened is, you know, typically your young bloods come up and they think they've invented everything and, (laughs) you know, the world's their oyster. And then you sort of crash into the establishment. And sometimes that can be quite a brutal collision. So in our case, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just having a great time. And eventually we got signed by this label. Um, And uh, we're not the first guys with a new sound to just sort of be sucked in by some older types going like hmm we can use this to sell lots more pop records um, and <laughs> before we we knew it they were sort of cranking the handle around on the sort of sausage machine and expecting more sausages and, and product the same shape as the previous records we made to come out mm-hmm. we didn't like that and it, but by the time we realized that that was what was happening we were in quite a crappy contractual situation we sort of lost control of our own name and you know this big company had to the rights time music. So Ninja Tune was a way to escape from that um, that morass <laughs> that swamp of the business that we found ourselves trapped in. It was uh, our technicolored escape pod. So we worked out we could have al- we could have um, aliases, we could have alternate identities. It didn't just have to be cold cut. So that's when we started DJ Food and Sweet Tooth Sunny and mm-hmm. various other, you know, aliases. And that was the identity of Ninja Tune was a vehicle for us to blast off and get out of the mud we were stuck in. So it was very much a reaction to, um, you know, a rather bruising um, encounter with the Babylon forces of the music business.
0: I think that, you know, Ninja Tune is quite literally it's collaboration in a label form because you have such a wide variety of artists on the label and You've signed so many over the years, and also other labels that you work with, like Flying Lotus's Brainfeeder, and now yeah. Bonobo's new label Outlier.
1: Yeah, Brainfeeder has been Brainfeeder has been particularly a great collaboration for us. But yeah, that's right.
0: How how do you go about choosing who the artists are that you're going to work with? Because I'm sure that you know uh, the the submissions are endless and numerous.
1: Yeah. If I could tell you though, it'd be a formula, wouldn't it? And then, you know, everyone would jump onto it. It's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> so I can't share the ninja secret formula. No, th- there isn't one really. But I, I think, you know, if you look at the artists, even over the whole years we've been going, all the artists on Ninja have um have their own character, which is manifest, which you can hear right in their in their music. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Mr. Scruff or DJ kid koala or and more recently say the young fathers or bicep bonobo they're sort of it's a collection of oddballs and there is no one defining characteristic other than that that we're all i'd almost call it like maybe outsiders is is too strong a term but definitely a bunch of oddballs and um so ninjas provided a sort of family structure that's attracted those kind of talents and we've managed to sort of in some crazy way keep it keep it going and i think ninja gets quite a lot i think one of the reasons ninjas liked is because we're seen as an artist driven label which is different to something just being a business profit making from the ground up john and i started as artists because we wanted to give ourselves a better deal and to give other artists a better fairer deal as well so i think that's a difference between ninja and a lot of other labels
0: yeah and i think um it it, it attracts i think ninja tune attracts like-minded pioneering talent and that's why it's flourishing and why you've done so well
1: well let's hope we can it, it's a culture isn't it i don't know if you've noticed with you know, places you've worked in or perhaps organizations you've been part of or schooled, they can have a culture which persists longer than the individual people there. Yes. And building that right culture is is very very important, very um, and, and, and difficult to get right. But places can have a culture that can persist for a long time. And if it's a positive culture of cooperation and respect and values that make it sustainable, overused words, but I think fair enough here, then it can sustain itself and keep on and keep that uh, those values up and keep producing quality collaborations that are not just product.
0: I love that. That's such a great mantra and such a great piece of wisdom for business owners to, to adhere to, that uh, uh, the concept of um, the culture of a, of a workplace persists long after certain people are gone. I, I like that a lot.
1: Yeah, that's... If we, if I can, if by the time I shuffle off, do the mortal Call shuffle, perhaps we'll still <laughs> leave behind something that can keep going and can still maintain that culture. I mean, that is, uh, you know, what one hopes from one's offspring, isn't it?
0: 100%. But fast forward to recently, mm. and you find yourself in South Africa doing really what you do best, which is collaborating on this grand scale for a project called Keleketla, Explain yeah. to me how this project came about, because it's so multifaceted and multi-layered.
1: Yeah, it's been uh, a fantastic trip, the Kela, Kela trip, actually. Um, I was just playing the record a couple of hours ago, and as I was signing a new bunch of vinyl that's just come in, and, um, you know, thinking, actually, I'm really happy with this. This came out really well. The start was an invitation from... Ruth Daniels of In Place of War, and
0: mm-hmm. as soon
1: as I heard that phrase In Place of War, I thought, yeah, I can vibe with that because that's really, it says a lot in a few words, you know, if In Place of War we can have music making, wouldn't the world be a better place? And I think that's where Ruth's coming from. And she'd already been in contact with um, Rara and Malosey, who the Keller Library guys from Joburg. And they decided to try and do something together. And it was Ryan Malose who suggested to Ruth that they would like to work with Ninja Tune and particularly with Kolka. We were apparently on the top of the list they made of people they wanted to collaborate with. So Ruth reached out to us. And I I must admit, at the beginning, I was kind of a bit sceptical because I was well wrapped up in my other projects I was doing. And um, to break those off and go to South Africa and to the unknown and what was it going to be? like and um you know would we just be seen as sort of intruding mm-hmm. um but my wife actually had worked in south africa uh in the on the film um a couple of years uh, on, my wife had worked in south africa on the film queen of catway which oh, is wow. um, set in uh it's in kampala but some of it was shot in south africa and um she thought it would be worthwhile going that we should accept the invitation so she actually reached out and got in contact with Ruth and kicked it about. The two ladies kicked it about a bit and um came up with this uh proposal that we should go there and do some tracks with local musicians. And they Ruth and Keller Kettler then brought in Mushroom Hour Half Hour, who were a label from Joe Berg and they found the musicians to work with. And um initially I think they assumed that we would want to do rap. We would want To do hip hop and rap, and so they found a bunch of MCs there. But John and I weren't so keen on that, and we were more sort of feeling a jazz vibe. Which I, I think maybe our antennae were twinging that the you know the London jazz scene was having a resurgence and that this could be a cool influence. Of course, with Jazz Breaks and DJ Food, we've always been into the jazz vibe, not that we have got any chops, so to speak, of, but we know what we like. Um, and South Africa, of course, is famous for jazz, mm-hmm. and so. That, um we went back and said, look, do you want to look around and see if you can come up with some proper musicians because that's what we don't do and we would like to get into that. So then they came back with the um, su- suggestions for the collaborators and that was looking good. So then we wound up flying over and meeting them all and uh, kicking the project off. It, it was, as you can imagine, uh, not having been in South Africa before it was quite a trip for John and me and uh, uh, you know we came there to learn and we did we did get a lot of new experience and new information to to soak in and so it's uh so we're stimulating you know it's like it gives you gives you stuff to grind and to work with and to sow and to grow when you're in an environment where you've never been before and things are very different so it was a huge creative boost just to be there and to meet all the wonderful people that we ended up working with, and it, not just the musicians, the whole, um, the Keller the library guys, you know, i never forget Ra's DJ set, which we, we did a night at the, their building there. Um, and it was just a revelation to see how people responded to the, some of the music he was playing, like some of the activist chants and, um, uh, you know, that wide, uh, and deep, musical heritage that south african music has got and then it crossed the tracks literally to trackside in soweto where we would set up this sort of pretty ad hoc you know project studio just in a room with um andrew curno and uh the uh the the bods that they'd got there to help make it happen um and Trackside, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a wonderful sort of neighborhood family space, very different to a normal sort of quite boring recording studio and uh, with the trains going past and the rain and the kids and the, um, you know, uh, very different vibe for John and me to be somewhere like that, so actually it was quite a risk because you never really know how a collaboration is going to turn out. Sometimes things just don't gel. Um, mm-hmm. But in this case, we must have been, we were lucky. Again, my wife was um, a big catalyst, an important part of this. She's just a huge sort of natural force of sort of female intelligence and love. And um, she just loves people and people respond back to her. So she was able to help interface us to the crew and the environment there. I think she was a vital ingredient in it, really. And she continued to work on the project when we got back to the UK, actually. She put the documentary together. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, she's my the main influence in my, my life nowadays and a great collaborator.
0: She sounds like quite a woman. And I haven't been to Trackside, but the way that you described it makes it sound so incredibly beautiful that I've made a note and it will definitely be on, a, on my list of to visit places when I go back to Johannesburg. But it really sounds to me like you had such an all-encompassing experience coming to Africa and coming to South Africa. Um, It sounds to me like it wasn't just a sort of, uh, how would I describe it, like a um, surface-level experience or or trip. It really sounds to me like you – experienced a whole bunch of different things that not a lot of musicians necessarily get to do when they come to South Africa.
1: Well, this is, you know, wherever one visits, there's the surface layers, but really one wants to dig in a little bit deeper and and that's about people actually, you know, being, having a little bit of openness. And um, I'm just aware of how ignorant I am actually about the history of other countries and the history of South Africa has been so intense and um, so complex that it was a good opportunity to sort of just keep my ears open, not talk too much and just try and soak up some other people's uh, points of view and and history. So um, yeah, incredible. I mean, I've got to ma- mention as well, Sounds of the South meeting the activist hip hop crew Sounds of the South in mm-hmm. Kailitsha. Again, that was something that Ruth um, just sort of spontaneously organised and asked if Dini and me, my wife and I, wanted to go along. So we went along and um, ended up in this room doing this workshop with the crew there and they were doing this toy-toy chant. So we whipped out the recorder and my wife literally stood in the middle recording the chants, And then um, we took that back and that became Future Toy-Toy, which I sort of my favourite track on the record, actually. I think it epitomises the, the way in which activism, politics, music, and soul can unite together to create something pretty strong and uh, with a point.
0: The list of collaborating artists on Kiliketa is drawn from all over the African diaspora. and Most notably, it includes the late Tony Allen, who was one yeah. of the founders of Afrobeat. Yeah. What were some of your challenges getting this expansive project together because you're working for people with people from all over the continent, from all over the world, really. I mean, it was London, LA, South Africa.
1: Indeed, yeah, it's, uh, managed to spread the network quite well. I mean, it's some. Um, it's about uh, call and response, which is call and response is the the key concept behind Keller kepler what the call of Kela Ketla means as I understand it is the storyteller calls out and the audience sh- shout Kela Ketla meaning yeah we're here and waiting ready we're, wait- we're here and we're ready to take part with active involvement so that was a good um, phrase and a good uh, key keystone to base things on and you know, not being in the studio with uh, Anti Ballas, for example, was quite challenging. So we had quite a lot of back and forth with them. Even the whole mix of the album being mixed by Eric Lau in China is another interesting cat that we connected to to realize this you know he brought a lot to it and that was all done over remote collaboration mm-hmm. the actual mixing of the album normally John and I would be in the studio leaning over the engineer's shoulder probably getting on his nerd <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> this way was a different process and it actually it worked worked really well um, you know getting Tony Allen in to play drums was a major coup as is such a hero for for, for John and me really I mean that love of fella cootie and that, that those those that music which which Tony Allen was the sort of powerhouse for it was such a, a experience to be in the studio with him and um, you know it, it's it, when you've got Tony Allen's name on it then it's very helpful to open doors and get other people to take it seriously so there was a uh, A process of sort of building up uh, a framework and a network attracting more people and that took took quite a while the ninjas like i say sort of conspiracy of music junkies basically ninja tune and so we got together some of the younger bloods there and built a list of people we'd like to work on who's relevant who might fit in this and um so we compiled this list and in the end quite a few people on that list we ended up scoring and then miles james who is the um oldest son of my best mate from college and actually duncan james my best mate he was ninja tunes first manager in fact and the guy who basically turned me on to black music his son miles is a wicked guitarist and i never worked with miles before but i thought well i know he plays a mean funky guitar <laughs> let's get him in. And that, again, was a great, that was a good note because it was him who suggested Afla. I said, look, we need some percussion. We need that fellow percussion and that clave who really understands this. Can you suggest anyone? says, yeah, Afla Sake, he's wicked. So Miles arranged that introduction. And then Miles also suggested, I said, look, we need a keyboard player. And he said, well, did you know, fella's old keyboard player, Delos Susime, lives in Hackney. Oh like, wow! really? Let's pick up the phone. So I, I literally, Miles told me that. I picked up the phone and Dele came down to the studio the next day and laid his ass off. And uh, the rest is history. That uh, guy is a mean people player. and His fingerprints are all over the album as well. So that was quite quite exciting.
0: That's phenomenal. But what, um, I mean, the response to the album in South Africa has been incredible. It's It's been received. With open arms, but what has oh, the? 18. It really has. It really, really has. What has the reception of of the album been like back in the UK?
1: We've been blessed with a very warm reception, actually. I mean, um, we got pretty much wall to wall good reviews. I think. Um, do you know? Uh, um, see, Bad Bunny, the. The number one streaming artist in the world. I was reading an article about him and it says he got a (laughs) score on Metacritic of 81% universal acclaim. So I think, oh, Metacritic, what's that? I wonder what we got on it. So I looked it up and we got the same, 81% on Metacritic, which is universal acclaim for Keller Kettler. So that is a nice compliment to have received that. And we've been received well by lots of critics and pundits. And um, a lot of people tell me that they've really enjoyed the album as well. Um, six music over here who are sort of kind of become the think, dare I say, the thinking person's BBC station <laughs> have been very supportive, um, of the record consistently supportive. And that does make quite a difference in getting it to people's ears. Uh, I turned on the radio the other day and uh, Iggy pop was just starting his show on six music and he blasted off with freedom groove by Keller Ketler. Oh,
0: incredible.
1: You know, It's like Iggy pop. He knows who we are. <laughs> 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 so that was, that was pretty great. Um, and uh, yeah, um, you know, even uh, if you, there's the remix album that we've done as well, um, mm-hmm you know we reached out to machine drum who's one of UK. Um, machine drum is one of ninja's sort of top new talents and um, he was really generously did this amazing remix for us for free because it's for the papua medeca the freedom for west papua campaign mm-hmm. and an uh, absolutely banging remix that really you know, sometimes when people just remix Sometimes when people do a remix, and I've done this as well, you we just take a snatch of vocal or, or anything and then just basically make a new track that has no relevance to the old one, but Machine Drum's Treatment of Papo um He really went in, he really listened to the track and presented the important elements in a new, exciting context. And so that was a really good result as well. The video is pretty cool, which Denias, my wife made. this a uh, video about the history of West Papo and sort of cut up music video but also you know political history and uh incitement for activism and support all in one
0: i'm going to go and listen to that immediately after this interview is over because i thought that the original version was so great um it's It's interesting to hear what you think but uh, definitely check
1: out the um the uh how long till freedom i think it's called the videos on youtube hopefully you can find that okay
0: definitely making a note now but Text Talks is first and foremost a South African and African podcast and one where our firm belief is in the promotion of South African and African talent. And I would love to know what your impression on the innate talent that we have here is.
1: Well, in a word, immense. You know, I think it's the time now for... Africa and African people and African music to come to the fore, and I think, in fact, if you watch the little documentary that we put together, Miles, Miles mm-hmm. James is on there, and he mentions how uh, at the how crucial at the moment this new influx of ideas and blood of the African influence is in UK music, and um, because he's a mixed heritage guy, he's in a good position uh, to you know have a view on that and to to use it and absorb it because it's in his blood already. Um, I think it's time. You know, the UK is quite good at sort of swooping into new ideas and then taking them and sort of polishing them off and then selling them to the rest of the world. And when that's done well, I think it's good. But I also think it's time for other countries to have their moment and feel their power and their independence and do stuff for themselves as well. Hopefully that can all be done in a collaborative cooperative world where we're all not just thinking about our country so much but about us as human beings coming together to create really uplifting music culture and action um but i just think africa south africa and africa generally there's so much talent there there's so much uh possibility and sometimes i think the uk is a bit played out it's the time for the younger countries now Mm. What do i mean not younger countries but the countries that um, haven't been running things haven't been in the forefront so much countries um, that
0: haven't necessarily had a voice over the years
1: yeah that's right and you know i think it's the it's the the post-colonial decolonizing era and mm-hmm. that is going to lead to some real shake-up and change and i for one am all up for it and relishing it i think we need some new ideas we need to kick out a lot of the old crap and ways of thinking and cliches and have some freshness and I I think Africa is bringing that in no uncertain fashion so I love that.
0: I think Cold Cut's place in history is going to be one of innovation and collaboration and I think you know if you look at the current state of play in terms of the output of artists globally especially during the pandemic do you feel like there's authentic collaboration that's going on that's being shaped by advances in how we're interacting now primarily online
1: i think there are new ways to interact and collaborate online that have come into focus from the pandemic um we did do a new version of international love affair actually which we pasted together by various technological means um and uh, th- th- that was good fun um a couple of things I can mention. You know, we've I've started doing streaming again. We started doing it in when was it nineteen ninety eight? Pirate TV. We started, but now with the pandemic, I relaunched pirate dot So I do a regular two hour show on Wednesday, and we connect with people all around the world, and we even have um, listeners in South Africa and 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 everywhere. And it's quite a nice little community. So that's been uh, fun to do. My wife does the show with me. We sort of do an audio visual show, and then you can also jump across to things like Tim Exiles, Endless. Uh, technology which is an app and a vst plugin that plays in your door digital your workstation endless plugin lets you collaborate over the internet with other musicians and swap pieces back and forth in real time so that's pretty exciting as well and there are other systems like that um and i think that's going to continue multiplying i saw a, uh, a demo the other day for Korgs gadget system going to be available in vr so there are vr mu- music making systems and communities as well and you can you know put your headset on and meet people in a virtual space i am excited by these and i i like to i'm out I'm for anything that's going really anything that lets people connect in whatever ways but i'm sure you'd agree with me that there's no substitute for irl you know and as, soon as we can get back to um some people in, in a in a sweaty room where we can touch and <laughs> smell each other for real the better as far as i'm concerned the, you know the technology the technological roots are not going to go away but for god's sake let's keep our humanity and uh, physical relationships in the frame as well huh
0: that's, that's going to be the tagline for the show. No substitute for IRL. I love that. Um, <laughs> but Matt, I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me today on text talks. This uh, has been, been a pleasure. I mean, this has been a bucket list interview for me and, and I can't wait to be the envy of my entire team uh, for the rest of this podcast existence. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, again. That's
1: sweet. Well, thank you so much for the support and uh, big up South Africa. We had, uh, this was the most joyful album I've recorded Um, It was the most joyful experience and uh, I think a lot of that was down to the special vibe in South Africa and to the people that we met and and had these relationships with. So yeah, Yeah. much uh, respect, much love and much gratitude, thank you.
0: Joining me in studio. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Text Talks. Be sure to check out TextTalks.com for more episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox, or listen to Text Talks on all good streaming platforms. Also, a huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store, for being the most incredible technical supplier. For myself, Tex, our producers Jonathan Engs and Matthew Lewitz, and our research assistant Al clapper catch you on the flip side.